your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Have you guys ever experienced awkward moments? <laughs> Maybe you were telling a funny story, and when the punchline came, you started laughing, and no one else did. Maybe you went to say hi to somebody, and they just ignored your hand, and you're like, oh, yeah. Maybe you were at a friend's house, and he got in trouble, and his parents started yelling at him in front of you. That's pretty awkward. Or how about when you're driving, and you see somebody from church that you know, and you see each other, great, you said hi, only to find out that you're going to see each other again at the next light. You don't know what to do. Do you say hi? Do you not? Awkward. Or maybe when you start dating and you tell that person, you muster that courage to tell that person, I love you. And they respond, thank you. Would you agree that these are awkward moments? Now, imagine if all these awkward moments that we just talked about happened in one day, let's say at an important holiday celebration like Christmas. How... How awkward would that be for you? Pretty awkward. Now, the awkward event that we're going to talk about today happened on one of the most important holiday celebrations in the history of the world, the Lord's last Passover. Imagine the awkwardness that Judas felt when he found out that Jesus knew about his evil plan to betray him. Now, you might ask, why are you using the word awkward? I'm using the word awkward because that's how it seemed and how Judas' reaction was indifferent. Instead of being one of shame, it was one that he probably said, that was awkward. I almost got caught about betraying Jesus, and Jesus still let me go. Let's read today's passage. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 25. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, What do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to the man of whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Quick recap. We're not going to go too much into detail. We've done this before. Recap of Passover week. Sunday, that's Palm Sunday. Jesus enters triumphantly. That's Matthew 21, 1 to 11. Then we go to Monday, Matthew 21, 12 to 46. This is when Jesus goes into the temple and takes those vendors out of the place of worship. Then we go to Tuesday, which is pretty long in Matthew, chapter 23, 24, and 25. We discuss how he debates with the Pharisees, he comes out against the Pharisees, and we have the Olivet Discourse. Then we have Wednesday, which we've been on Wednesday for a couple of Wednesdays and Sundays now. 
We saw how Jesus predicted his own death. We saw the plot that the Pharisees had to try to kill him. We saw how Mary anoints Jesus with their costly perfume. And lastly, we saw last Wednesday before the break, we saw that Judas accepts the bribe from the Pharisees to betray Jesus. Now we have arrived to Thursday. We have arrived to Thursday of the Passover week, and we will be camping here for a while. Uh, the events that we'll be looking at on Thursday, for the next couple of weeks, we'll have the last Passover and conversations. That's what we're going to be dealing with today. Then we're going to have the Lord's Supper instituted. Then we're going to see the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we're going to see Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And then Peter denies Jesus. That's how Thursday of the Passover week ends. Today we will specifically look at the last Passover preparation and the perilous prediction of Jesus' betrayal. So for those that are taking notes, this is the outline. Three themes regarding Jesus' last Passover. Three themes regarding Jesus' last Passover. We have scene one, which is the preparation. The verses that discuss that is uh, verses 17 to 19. Then we have scene two, the perilous prediction. That's verses 20 to 25. And in this scene two, I have divided into three sections. We're going to see the actual betrayal. Well, when he proclaims the betrayal in verses 20 to 21, we're going to see the worry. And we're going to see the confession. And then scene three ends this scene of the last Passover that Jesus celebrates in the Lord's Supper as an institution of a sacrament for the church. But we will not be going over those verses today. That will be on Sunday with Emilio. He will be teaching that and something more as well. Okay. The universal theme or the main idea as you read and as we study this together is the following. The Lord's Supper reminds us of God's mercy and sovereignty over salvation. The Lord's Supper reminds us of God's mercy and sovereignty over salvation. Passages like the one we're going to study today should blow your mind and should cause you to praise our sovereign God who orchestrates everything, who knows everything, who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And it's such a blessing to know as a believer in Christ that we serve a God who is sovereign, who is perfect in all his ways. So let's start with the first scene of today's last Passover that Jesus celebrates. Titled it, The Preparation. Verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So what does the first day of unleavened bread mean? It means that it's Thursday of that week, like we just mentioned. We can assume two things about the disciples from this verse. Number one, they were devout in their religion, right? They liked, they, they, they loved honoring their traditions, and they want to celebrate with Jesus' Passover because it's one of the most important holidays that if you're a Jew, you would celebrate. Or the other thing we can assume is that Jesus had told them earlier, hey, remind me when we get to Jerusalem, I have already made some plans, remind me, so we can so we can go and start talking to the person, so we can start this, this process, which is pretty big, to prepare for the last Passover. Regardless of the assumption, I, I think it's a mixture of both. Because his disciples and Jesus, they were followers of Moses' law, and they wanted to honor it because it was God's word. And, they, and Jesus also had beforehand prepared 
this meal, this, this place where they were going to uh, celebrate Passover, as the Gospel of Mark tells us, as we'll read in a second. I also want to clarify that there's a distinction between when you, say, when you read the Festival of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. There's a distinction. See, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a feast celebrating the liberation of the Israelites from bondage. That's the entire week. That's what it's called. That's what they're celebrating. We're, we remember when God took us out of Egypt. The Passover meal is eaten on the 14th day of Nisan, which is March or April sometimes in our Gregorian calendar. MacArthur states it this way. The two names were in fact used interchangeably to designate the entire eight-day celebration. Technically, however, the Passover was celebrated only on the first day and the 14th of Nisan, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread followed from the 15th to the 21st day of Nisan. So that's the distinction, so know that. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread can be used interchangeably, but it's an eight-day celebration. It starts with the Passover meal and continues with the Jews, those that are celebrated, not eating, not eating unleavened bread. Now, what does the Passover look like? How does, what did it look like back in the day? Well, D.A. Carson, he gives us this insight. And I, I put it up there so you guys can read it along with me because it's pretty big. It's a little tough. Two paragraphs. You ready? So, this is how it's celebrated. If you can't read it, I'm going to try my best and just follow along as I read. Toward mid-afternoon on a Thursday, the 14th day of Nisan, the lambs, one per household, a convenient group of perhaps 10 or 12 people, were brought to the temple court where the priests would sacrifice them. They would kill them there. The priests took the blood and passed it in basins along a line till it was poured out at the foot of the altar. They also burned the lamb's fat on the altar of burnt offerings, and then they started singing the Hillel, accompanied. So that's, that's that first part of the Passover in the, in, the, in the afternoon. After sunset, the household would gather in a home to eat this Passover lamb, which by this time would have been roasted with bitter herbs. The head of the household began the meal with the thanksgiving for the feast day and for the wine and praying over the first the first of four cups. A preliminary course of greens and bitter herbs was apparently followed by the Passover, in which a boy would ask the meaning of all this, and the head of the household would explain the symbols in terms of the Exodus, and there was more singing. So this is what a Passover meal looked like and would look like today for those that, for the Jews that still celebrate it. So as you can see, a lot of details, right, that go to prepare the Passover meal, yes, it is a lot of details. So that's why the disciples are asking, hey, where do you want us to celebrate it so we can start getting on this? Because it's a lot to prepare and do. So let's continue on verse 18. And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. That's what Jesus commands. Okay, where are you going to go? You're going to go to the city and you're going to find a man. The parallel passage in Mark gives us a little bit more detail. And he, would, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Right. And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepared for us there. So... They are to go and to find a man who is carrying a water pitcher. 
what can we assume? Well, to celebrate Passover, you need a big area. And Jesus preemptively thought, we're going to need somewhere to celebrate this. He had planned with this person that he was going to celebrate the Passover there with his disciples. How do we know that? Well, verse 15 tells you of Mark, it was already furnished. It was furnished for them to be there. So Jesus already produced this and had talked to them so they can know and have a place to celebrate Passover. Now, notice the instruction that Jesus gives. You're going to go find a man who is carrying a water jar. This is important. Why? Because men did not carry water jars. Men carried animal skins with water inside them. The women were the ones that carried jars of water. And you might ask, well, what's the difference there? Why do we need to know that? Well, it was important that they distinguish that man to follow that man to his house. Why? MacArthur states this. This had to be orchestrated by Jesus. Why? Because no one, especially his disciples in the circles, could know where he was going to celebrate the Passover. Why? Can anybody guess why his inner circle couldn't know exactly where they were going to celebrate? So, it could have been an earlier arrest. It could have been earlier. And Jesus, in his sovereign eternal plan, decided this would be the best way to not have his disciples know because his disciples were John and Peter. They would have gone. They would, no communication would have gone until they were all there. And Jesus needed that time because what happened? You're going to learn on Sunday. The Last Supper was instituted as a church sacrament. It was important for the time and place to be there. So what did the disciples do after Jesus tells them where to go and what to do? Did they ask a million questions before obeying? Kind of like what we do with our parents sometimes? Well, let's see. Let's read verse 19. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Luke lets us know that it was Peter and John. Luke chapter 22, verse 8. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. Did Peter and John hesitate when Jesus gave them these instructions? Did they hesitate? What do you mean, Jesus? Like, who's this guy? Like, what is he going to look like? How does he know? Is he expected? Is he not? They just, they just went. And guess what? Had they experienced this before? Yes, they had. Back, remember when we did the triumphal entry, Matthew 22, verses 2 to 3? Saying to them, go into the village opposite of you, opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in there, a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their clothes on them, and he sat on the colt. So this is something that the disciples were like. At this point, hopefully, they, they know who he is, they believe his word, and they're just going to trust him blindly for what he tells them to do. Now, a quick, like Pastor Wade says, a quick pastoral note. Is this a type of obedience that we can pray to imitate in our personal lives? Yes, yes it is. I mean, to obey your parents right there and then. Yes, that's a good thing to pray for. If they're telling you something that is not against the Bible, do it and do it quickly and do it with joy and your teachers and your leaders and all that. It's, it's important. So this concludes the first scene regarding the last Passover that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. Now we're going to move on to the second scene which is the perilous prediction. And I remember, we divided this in three sections. The first section of the perilous prediction is the betrayal. The betrayal prediction. Verse 20. 
Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. So remember when I read that expert excerpt of D.A. Carson? Now, the, the, the lamb is slaughtered in the, in, the, in the afternoon. Now, in the evening is when they eat it. So this is the evening portion, the latter part of the day. What does it mean to be reclining at the table? Well, for those that don't know, the, the idea of the table that you see today at a restaurant or at your house is not there. People ate on the floor with cushions. They were reclined on the cushions. They were reclined on each, kind of like on each other. If you had a conversation, basically you'd be reclining like this. You're, you're eating and then the other person's there and you're talking. And then that's where we're going to read later on where uh, John was on Jesus' bosom. Not that he was literally on his bosom. It was like there was this intimate talking. Yeah, I'm, yeah, what's going to with you? It's like, yeah, it's very intimate. And then you sit and you eat and you go this way and you, that's what it means to be reclining at the table. What does this tell us about our Savior? He spent time with His disciples. He did life with them. He smelled like them. The disciples talked like Him with His accent. Why? They were always with their teachers. Remember, how popular was Jesus during this Passover week? How popular was he? Pretty popular, right? Remember, Hosanna, King of David, King that's going to save us from the oppression. Remember that? He could have been anywhere. I'm pretty sure he got many, many invitations for dignitary celebrations of the Passover. But no, he wanted to celebrate with his disciples. And he knew he was going to die. Because he knew that it was for him important to celebrate his last moments on earth with his twelve. That's who Jesus was. Now, he was there with those who he cared for, yes? Who was also there? Who was also there among the twelve? Who was he also loving on during this Passover meal? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Now, how is that? How, how could that even be possible? Like, we barely, if somebody offends us, we barely want to sit next to them. Jesus knew that he was going to betray him, yet he still loved on him, even until his betrayal. Even until his betrayal. Like, that is something that we want to pray for and emulate and be like him. So what did he tell them as they were eating? Verse 21. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. See, as they were eating means that as some, some time had gone by and many conversations could have happened. I'm just, put your creative cap or whatever you guys call it today. Put it on. We're at the Passover meal. We start talking. Jesus with his disciples. It's a family-oriented type of event. He's probably, you know, knowing Jesus, he's opening Exodus. He's going through the Passover. He's going through Exodus. He doesn't have to go to any commentators to give a nice sermon. He, he has it all. He's giving one of these nice explanations. The disciples are like, wow, I never even knew that. I never even saw that. He's like, yeah, I can, you know, I, I, I'm there. I was there. Anyways, after that, they could be, you know, talking to each other. And, hey, Jesus, you know, remember when you said, give to Caesar the season God got? You should have seen the faces of those Pharisees. And they could be laughing. And this is the environment of hap what happens at the Passover. What happens at a, a holiday celebration, you guys? We, they're talking, they're celebrating, they're, they're fellowship. <laughs> All of a sudden, they stop. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. 
So a time of rejoicing turns quickly to a time of awkwardness, a time of worry. He tells them this dire news. And then he starts and says, Truly, I say to you, truly, means let it be so, truly, amen. Guys, what I'm saying right now is real, it's true, it's going to happen. And guess what? The Greek for betray here, it's not a betrayal of friendship. No, it's a betrayal that you will turn me over to authorities, to the government. You will turn me in. That is a betrayal that Jesus is telling that's going to happen. Not a friendship betrayal. No, a could be incarcerated, could die, could be executed type of betrayal. And guess what? And he told them it wasn't going to happen with a lot of the disciples that were following Jesus. Many, maybe of the 70 that went with him. Or, it was going to happen from one of the 12. One of the 12. And remember, how important were the 12 disciples to Christ? Would you say very important? How important were the 12 apostles to the church? To our church? To today? Basically, you and me are believers in Christ because the message that those 12 apostles spread. And then those spread after those. And, those, and it, 2,000 years later, we're here with that message. It was pretty important. Psalm 55, 12-14 says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me or who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, he who has sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God and is gone. This is who would betray him. One of the twelve. Now, as you can imagine, this causes a lot of commotion within the disciples. They're like, what do you mean somebody's going to be saved? What, what, is, what is that about, Christ? What is that about, Lord, and Rabbi? So, we go into the second part of the second scene, which is their anxious response. In verse 22, being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord, they were deeply sad. They were not just sad. They were deeply, deep sadness after Jesus says that in this last Passover celebration. What do they all begin to say? Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. Now their response, is no, it's, it's worth noting their response. Did they mean, surely not I, Lord, because I finally see myself as this horrible sinner that I really can't even trust my heart? And you are more than me, and I, I really don't know. Lord, really, is it me from a genuine heart? Or is it, I know it's not me, but everyone's saying it. I just got to say it so I won't be that prideful person. Surely not I, Lord, right? And inside your heart, like, of course not me, because I would never, I never, never do such an atrocity. I'm too good. So I think the latter response is the most natural and human response, right? Maybe the disciples, because they were so close to Christ and His teaching, maybe they were that mature. Maybe some of them were mature. But I guarantee you that some of them weren't. And they were just like prideful in their thinking and thinking that they're so good that they would never do such a thing. Another pastoral side note. When confronted by sin, if you know you did it, own up to it. 
Stop protecting a high view of yourself that you shouldn't have in the first place. Do that. Trust me. It'll be, you'll be honoring God. You'll be glorifying God. There's no need to lie. Own up to it. And give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you did do something wrong. We, we are sinners. Alright? And we do sin before God. Now, if you are in Christ, that's not your nature. If you're not in Christ, that is your nature. So, just know that. So, let's go back to what do you think Judas is thinking? He just said, one of you is going to betray me. And everyone's going to say, surely not I. Judas is like, who has Jesus been talking to? How did he find out? I have been betrayed. The irony of that. Right? Did, did Judas just even think that? I'm not sure he did. I'm just, in my, if I were there, this is not inspired, guys. But if I'm there and, I, and I'm Judas and I'm thinking, how did you know? And who betrayed me? How dare they? But there's no repentance. He could have told Jesus right there and then. He could have tried to save himself and the Lord. And he's like, Jesus, I, I did the work. I, I repent from this. I, I, I said that I was going to turn you in. Please forgive me. Is that what Judas does? No, he doesn't. You know why? Because a heart that's hard-hearted and rebellious against God won't do it and won't see the sin and won't bow the knee to God. So after the disciples say, the surely not I comments, look at what Jesus says. And he answered in verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Verse 24, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. So Carson states that the whole idea of he who dipped his hand in, with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me, basically says, since everyone dipped their hand in that Passover meal, it's one of you guys. He's, he's reinforcing the fact that he's saying, yes, one of you will betray me. The, ones that are, the one that is eating with me in this bowl is going to betray me. The Son of Man, verse 24, is to go. The Greek to go here is to die. Conceived as, a depart, as, as of departing a location. He needs to go. Why? Because it is written of him. What is written of him? What is written of Jesus' death and resurrection? Well, let's look, just start with Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You can look at Psalm 22. You can look at Psalm 69. You can look at Isaiah 53. What about Zechariah 13, 7? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little one. Guys, this is the main idea of tonight. God is sovereign. Nothing, nothing catches God by surprise. He orchestrates all of this from the beginning of time. Judas is not that sneaky person that's going to get away with something in history. No, God allowed that for His glory. This is the kind of God that we serve. He's sovereign, including sovereign of salvation for those that He's going to save and the plan that He was going to use for salvation. See, the Lord's Supper is a perfect way to remind us that we have and serve the perfect God who gave this perfect sacrifice for us. Guys, don't read over this as it is written. Don't read over this without really thinking about it. This, this verse here should cause us to praise Him, to thank Him. Why? Because if it wasn't 
for God's best betrayal, sacrifice, all of us would have no hope for salvation. It is because Christ endured suffering, the suffering that you and me deserve. He did it for us. He lived a life, the perfect life that you and me could never live. We sin before God, and that sin departs us from His glory, takes us straight to hell. Our disobedience is our fault, not God's. But the good news is that Jesus lived a perfect life that none of us can live. Because no matter how hard you try, you cannot save yourself. You're not good enough. You will never be good enough. He dies on the cross. He resurrects on the third day. And the Bible is clear and says that those who repent and believe and put their faith only in Christ can have this salvation. The salvation that God planned from the beginning of time. God knew we would sin. God knew, and He still created us. God knew He would have to give His only Son, and He still created us. Why? For His glory, to show the world His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, because that's God. That's who He is. Sovereign. Sovereign God. So what happens to those that don't repent? Like Judas. Let's go back to the verse. Verse 24. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Woe is an interjection of grief. Hear me, hear the horrible news that I'm about to say. Woe to that man who would betray the Son of Man. It is good. The good here means wiser or more advantageous. It would have been more wise and advantageous for that man not to have been born. We know that there are different degrees of punishment in hell. We've seen this. That's why when he says, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Because you saw Christ and His miracles and you still denied Him. It'll be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be worse for Judas. Maybe the worst ever place in hell for Judas who betrayed the Son of God. Now, you might be thinking, how fair is that? You know, that seems kind of unfair to me, kind of like unjust, as if God purposely, no, we purposely sin against Him. And God uses that for His glory. It's not God, it's us. The real question to ask is, why does God save anyone? He didn't have to. Let's look at Paul's response to this question of being unjust. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 9, verse 11. The word that says, For though the twins were not yet born and have not done anything, like the merit salvation, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, does it, de- does it not depend on the man who wills it or the man 
So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? That's God and His sovereignty. God and His sovereignty. And this is the big picture of God and His sovereignty. He is sovereign. He is God. The secret things belong to the Lord. You focus on the things that are revealed. You do not focus on the things that are secret because God is God. God is God. The second part of this Passover scene ends with the indifferent confession. Verse 25, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Many of the commentators that I read, basically, the reason why Judas asked this question to Jesus is for him to not reveal his true sin, to not reveal his plan. So if, if he's the only one that doesn't say it, people are going to be looking at him saying, So it's Judas? So that's why he says, Is it not I? And you might think, well, how did this happen in front of the whole crowd that was there? It had to happen privately. It had to happen privately. And we know that in John's account of, the, of this, of this, of this, uh, of this um, event, you see it. Go open your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 21. This is a parallel account of today's last uh, Passover scene. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know, at a loss to know of which one was he speaking. He was, was he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Hey, tell us, tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. So John leaned back thus on Jesus' bosom and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel, which is be the bread, and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said that to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Go buy things you have need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So the whole, you have said it yourself, is, is the same Greek verb that Jesus used when, when he was, uh, 
before the high priest when he tells him, tell us now, are you the Messiah? Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Judas left. Judas leaves the last Passover. Not repentant. He leaves knowing he has a plan in place. But Jesus knew. He didn't catch him by surprise. Everything was orchestrated by God himself. This Sunday, we're going to finish this last scene. And Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's something that we celebrate for today. The sacrament of the church. And we'll finalize that last supper scene. So as we come to an end, how can we apply the rich truths we just learned today in God's Word? How can we apply them? Well, number one, how about we try to be obedient to Jesus' commands? The Bible says, if you love me, follow my commandments. Be like the disciples, ready to serve your master. What does Jesus command us to do? Pray. Read his word. Serve in the church. Love one another more than ourselves. For this the world will know that we are Christians in how we love one another. Be obedient to Jesus' command just like his disciples were. Number two, follow Jesus' example in loving your enemies. Love all those, not that are nice. It's easy to love someone that's nice to you. It's harder to love those that are difficult. We can try to show God's love and mercy to those, just like He shows us daily. (laughs) And we'll show us daily for the rest of our lives. Number three, don't have a high view of yourself. Don't have a high view of yourself. When presented with an allegation, think before responding. Could have happened. You could have done it. There's nothing wrong with admitting it. It's better off. Number four, trust God during your difficult circumstances. Guys, if the Lord orchestrated the greatest evil known to man, which is the death of His own Son, and He used it for the greatest good, which is the salvation that He offers you and me, trust that He is in control of your circumstance. Trust that if you are in Christ, everything works together for good, so that what? You may be conformed to His image. Trust. Trust. It's hard. It's easier said than done when you don't have a family member who's sick, when somebody just passed away in your family, when your parents are trying to get a divorce, when you're having problems in school, when you're being bullied. All these things are tough. But know that God is in control of every single aspect of your life, of whatever happened in the past and whatever will happen in the future. He's in control. And our job is to trust in Him and for who He is and not what He can do. Lastly, Praise God for His sovereign work in salvation. God didn't have to save any of us. He didn't, but He did. And we should praise Him forever and ever and ever. And we should thank Him and thank Him every day for the salvation that He has given us. We were headed to hell. But those that repent and put their faith in Christ have hope in Him. He is rich in mercy. And he had another plan for us to save us. And we should praise him for that. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you because 
you gave your only Son for us. He was betrayed by the ones He loved the most. He was beaten, scourged, humiliated for us. The God of the universe, the eternal God, the eternal Son of God, was made and was there in creation, who sustains the entire world, died a shameful death on the cross for us. Thank you. Thank you, God. Because our salvation does not depend on us, but it solely depends on you. Allow us to bow our knees to you, to repent from our sins, and to call upon your name to be saved, Father. I pray that those that aren't saved, tonight can be the night of their salvation. We worship you, we adore you, and we thank you for your sovereignty. You are an amazing God. Thank you for being our God. We love you, we worship you, and we bow our knee to you, God.